I'll jettison us in, and we'll be in the we'll be in the pod sphere. Hoorah! Okay. <laughs> we're now entering. Is into that the how we're starting podcasts? That's now. how we're starting podcasts. Hoorah! Get yourself into the Pottersphere, boys and girls. We're going underwater for a big Pottersphere adventure. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Believe it or not, a podcast about board games. What? On this episode, we're going to talk about two board games, but there are three of us talking about them who I should introduce first. Firstly is the person that you're hearing now. It's me, it's Tom Brewster, and I'm joined by Ava Foxfort. Hello, you've gestured to your left in a way that implies that you're there, but I just did it in the right direction as well, so it's fine. And above me, Matthew Lees. Hello, yes, I am above you, because I am the captain of the Podosphere, as we go now to depths unknown to talk about board games in our newly fashioned British Steel Podosphere. You might think that Matt's intro makes it sort of sound like we're talking about games that are sort of aquatic or underwater themed. Absolutely not. not. We're completely at another end of the spectrum. We're talking about civilization on this episode of the podcast in its various forms, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, On this podcast, we're going to be talking about Korra, Rise of an Empire, uh, a game about rising an empire. It's almost completely (laughs) themeless. We're going to be talking about founders of Teotihuacan, which I think I got the pronunciation right, and maybe a little bit of Boon Lake spread somewhere in there like a sort of marmite so let's set those depth charges let's set the engine to full speed and let's get this podosphere into the water it doesn't work like that the first subaquatic location on today's deeply aquatic podcast is cora rise of an empire now this is published by yellow under their yellow expert range which i really enjoy the fact that it's like on the box (laughs) it's like you better be an expert this game ain't playing and it is designed by Headquarter Simulation Game Club with art from David Chapelet and Jocelyn Millet, or Millet, I believe. So I like that this is this is designed by a, a club, not a person. Headquarter Simulation gang. Game Gang. That would have been... I like that. Yeah. But you might end up going to jail if you call yourself Headquarter Game Gang. So, Cora, Rise of an Empire. Now, this is a... I would say wonderfully dry game. I, I actually really yeah. like this, Tom. Like, it's dry, but not in a way that I usually find annoying. Often when we play games that feel dry and it's annoying, it's because it feels like it's going to be something that's rich in theme and like, oh, it's going to be like this and that, and then actually it's just numbers going up. Whereas this is very obviously a game of numbers going up. The main board is just tracks or things that you remove for getting a thing. There's no, there's nothing, there's nothing going on. It's just like, here's a board, what is it? We put our tokens on it and we move up these very, it's just like a, a graph. It's not. It's a spreadsheet. It's a spreadsheet, it really is. Um, and I think that that promise initially of going, look, this is going to be a game where you do a spreadsheet thing. And the fact there's no semblance to the idea that anything's going to be particularly exciting is a really solid foundation for then a game which isn't at any point really exciting, but I found really satisfying, really lovely. So it's based on ancient Greece and effectively you all have these different uh, factions you know like Argos and Olympia and all these other places and things that were to do with ancient Greece. I thought that was shopping centres. <laughs> yeah, yeah all shopping centres. I see when I say Argos it just makes me laugh if you don't know. In Britain it's a shop where you go in they've got a big catalogue and you just type in a number and then they tell you whether or not they've got it in there 
unknowable warehouse in the back. Mm. They'll go into the warehouse, they'll spend about a year trying to find it, and then they'll come out and be like, I have found your electric scooter. Yes. Here it is. It was next to the graters. Exactly. And no one has any concept how big the warehouse is, but presumably it's mm. gigantic because they seem to have yeah. everything. I think it goes deep rather than wide. Yeah, it was basically like pre-internet. Like, it was the internet before the internet is the best way to describe yeah. Argos. Um, anyway, the way it works is after you've chosen one of these things, you're going to slot in your little faction board into your lovely dual-layered cardboard player board, which is a new trend oh. we're seeing that I'm, I'm into, I must admit. It has that same appeal of the best thing about Zombicide, which was that lovely plastic player board that you have with pips that you pull out and stick in to indicate your mm. experience levels or whatever and shifting things around. That mechanic is the only good thing about Zombicide in my in my professional opinion, you know, and it's wonderful because it taps into that the only good thing in that classic board game, the game of life, which was the bit where you pulled out the little person from the car and put people into the car. You know, getting yeah. to put children in the back of the car. That was the only good thing about that game. But it was great and it was enough to make me want to play it. But Yes, we've got this basically dual-layered thing, so you slot your little faction card into it very nice. You've got a little bonus at the start, maybe. You've got some little powers that that faction can use. And then, guess what is on your board as well as that? More spreadsheety-looking things. <laughs> <laughs> you have three different shapes of wood that slot into three different shaped holes. As Tom can attest to, this is something I'm very good at, putting shapes into the same shapes. Mm, you passed that test with absolute flying colours while I fumbled for for minutes. You did. You were like trying to put a larger circle into a smaller circle thing. And I you were like, no, Tom, scoffing I've your been face. here before. Yeah. Don't make the same mistakes I did, son. <laughs> Effectively, these are different tracks of... Uh, things that you're going to be bumping up by spending money to improve your like economy or culture or something else, warrior stuff. And again, it doesn't really matter because thematically, it's just sort of numbers and things. But the aesthetic of it is flipping lovely, I think. It has a simple, mm. like modern classic Euro feel. You know, Ava, you know what I mean? Like the games of like 10 years ago where things were like just starting to look a bit nice, but still had that kind of like very board gamey feel. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So quite abstracted boxes and stuff, but everything yeah. with like a nice layout and like some nice components to move things around. Nice components, and, uh, yeah. like you know, good little colors. Car little cardboard scrolls, uh, good colors. I love the card backs. Tom wasn't as fussed, but the card backs are very simple uh, but attractive. And effectively, the game is you have these little, a little handful of eight effectively like cardboard cards that are like basically half-size cards but they're made of cardboard and each round you're going to roll some dice and then you're going to place down um, some of these cards and put dice on them face down not face down dice that's that's impossible <laughs> they're not two-dimensional objects i might just say that a bit again every turn you're going to roll some dice and you're going to choose from one of these a couple of the right every turn you're going to roll some dice and the numbers on these dice are going to dictate what Endly. You're dictate what, Matt? Do you want me to? Do you want me to? <laughs> what no, no, I can do it. I can do it, Tom. <laughs> I've got to believe. You've done the numbers. You've done the putting the right shapes yeah. in the holes mini game. Exactly. Now you've just got to explain. It's like one more rule, and then we can play. <laughs> 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 Every turn, you're going to roll some dice, and then the numbers on those dice are going to dictate the ease with which you can play these chunky cardboard cards from your hand. Now, these cards are going to go from zero 
up to six in value. Mm -hmm. And each of these things does a different action. But you're going to be putting them face down and putting a dice on top of them so the other players don't know exactly what you're going to be doing on that round. And you can fudge it. There's one of the economies that you have in the game is, is people, populations, and you can always, if you have them, while you're doing it, you can spend them to turn a three into a six, for example, to make it so that you can do one of these more expensive actions. Now, you only get to roll two dice at the start of the game, so, you know, later on you can unlock a third dice, but really you can just do two things, and it's quite hard to choose which ones you're going to do, particularly if you roll the dice and you roll badly, and you then have to, like, spend more economy than you want to to be able to jump up that ladder, and especially if you want to be actually doing the expensive actions quite frequently. And I found that interesting in the fact that you did have these different... The theming of why you're using population to do that, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But the fact is, you, you've got money, and you can increase the amount of money you're making each turn by, like, you know, increasing the amount of taxing people. You got, you've got military that you can, like, slowly build up, a large army, or you can be sending that army out to get you rewards. They're going to get you points at the end of the game. But the better rewards will often result in more of the soldiers dying. So there's a bit of jostling up and down the track, particularly because there's a big juicy thing that someone can get if they send 15 soldiers into a fight and then all 15 die. They get a great, great prize. So there's a fun back and forth there on that track in terms of people being like, are they trying to get to the top? Should I be safe? Should I build up an army? Or are they not going to bother and am I wasting my time and I should just send my uh, boys and girls out to get killed now? and get the, the little prizes along the way. And this interplay of basically putting down these things, revealing them and flipping the dice, and then going through is very rapid in the fact that once we knew what we were doing, you can pretty much do it all at the same time. There's some parts where it's like, okay, turn order matters in terms of who's going to take what, but mostly you can just be like, I'm going to do that, which gives me this, I'm going to do this, which gives me this, I'm going to play this card that does this. And that is pretty much the whole game. You've also got like card cards that you have as part of the mechanic that you can play and that give you like ongoing bonuses or end of game scoring and all of that stuff. It wasn't terribly complicated. It was quite a simple game to get going into. Um, I enjoyed the kind of the depth of options going on to a degree of being like, you know, do I want to try and... It gave me that, like, racing line thing that I really like in a good Euro of, like, you know, how poor can I consistently be while still just having just enough money to do all the things I need to do? Or, like, mm. you know, how few people can I have in my population? Like, what, where am I willing to put that risk, right? Like, am I willing to risk randomness and take a chance on that? Or am I willing to take, you know, just mitigate that completely? Um, it had some interesting spaces. And I think, Tom, you were saying that some people, you know, uh, weren't keen on the the randomness element of the dice, which I can understand, but I, I thought yeah. that was a fruitiness, which I enjoyed. I think there are two points that like people might find frustrating about this game. And the first is like you kind of alluded to already, which is just there is almost no player interaction in this game. It's very much like we've sort of sat in that rhythm of like, uh, it's time to take our turns. I'll just trust that you're doing everything above board and I'll do my turn at the same time. Oh, look, it's a new round. Let's go again. Mm. There is like one point at which players actively interact with each other, except for like some of those little politics cards that you have in your hand. You can play them and they might give you some player interaction. But other than that, it's it's multiplayer solitaire. It's parallel play. It's, it's all of that. But yeah, you're right. The second part of it is those dice, right? So you roll the dice and, and you know, they've got 
there's I was gonna explain what a dice is. You've got pips <laughs> on them that go from one to six. What? Uh, <laughs> and they'll determine what action you can take. So if you did just roll two ones and your opponent rolled two sixes, you have zero freedom for what you can do on that turn, whilst they have total freedom for what they can do on that turn. You can mitigate against that with those little citizens, but that's still kind of a weird little problem which isn't entirely satisfying when you had to spend your whole turn getting rid of a load of citizens just to do what you want while your opponent has just done it for free. It's that's the part that I think could definitely annoy people. And I can it kind of annoys me a little bit, even though I've never been at the receiving end of it. It kind of puts a weird sort of feeling under the bottom where you kind of feel like, are they really that necessary? Do uh, you I don't need know. them? <laughs> I really liked it, to be honest. I really like that because you know, you start with some and they're not that hard to come by. You know, it's not that hard to get more population if you if you yes. just if you just suck it up and and do the things you need to to get population right because it's like the problem is you don't want to do that right you want to get you don't want to upgrade the thing that gets you more population you want to upgrade the thing that gets you like another dice or like you know, yeah. much better points in the game or military and stuff so i like that in the fact that it also felt like a degree of greed like i came to a point where i was in trouble because i rolled badly and i just didn't have population so i had to just change what i wanted to do based on what i had available at that point and that was kind of frustrating. But the reason I've got into that problem is because in prior rounds, I had been greedy and I had been mm. like, ah, yeah, but I don't want to take these actions. So I kept just like frittering away at times when I didn't really need to, but I wanted to just like do something slightly better. And it wasn't sensible. I should have just accepted that a pair of fours is good. You don't need to make them a five and a six, Matt. Calm down. <laughs> you know, um, so I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. And I, I like that riskiness of being like, can I fly close to the sun? And I can see why, like, it's, for me, it feels like a perceptual problem, right? Because often in Euros, you will have a degree of like, oh, something's happened. Like, whether it's the cards you have or something where you can't really do what you were hoping to be able to do this round. You know, that that is a thing that can happen, like, randomly, something's happened that you couldn't have foreseen, and now you can't do what you want to do. That's a pretty common thing in games. It's just that when you see it directly in front of your eyes like this, in such a pure, like, the, embod right. the very embodiment of luck itself, the evil die, <laughs> um, I think it f I can see how it feels worse. It's also that there's, like, quite weird feelings that can come from that kind of randomness. And, like, dice feel so mean and unfair when yeah. they go wrong. Because you've got such strong associations of, like, snake eyes being awful, double sixes being brilliant. And yeah, and if it is just those same things, you've just got all of that. We've been having a lot of, I've been playing a bit of Ark Nova with my regular group recently. We've been talking a lot about like how random card draw affects whether you're having fun or not and like mm -hmm. adapting to a bad draw and what you do with that. And at least with cards, it's like, there's just stuff in front of you and you've got to figure it out and it might be bad, but also maybe you're missing something. So you've got something to puzzle over. Whereas if it's puzzle just over a one roll, dice. Yeah. Um, uh, jumping back, I was going to say earlier that the uh, best, the other good thing about Game of Life, it's a big spinner in the middle of the table. Spinners, oh, yeah. underused as randomizers, don't have the same cultural baggage as dice. And I bet it would be cheaper to customize spinners than it is to make custom dice stuff. Why aren't yeah, people using cardboard? White? Bring back spinners. Bring back I think spinners. it's because it will it does have cultural baggage and it'll put people straight back into Twister. 
as soon as that spinner starts <laughs> clacking, they'll be thinking twister and they'll, they'll be, be they'll be uncontrollable. They'll be on their be on their knees and hands immediately. Yeah, they'll be they'll be on one knee on red and one leg. Yes. <laughs> you hear the sound of a spinner and immediately you And immediately crumble. you can tour into an impossible pretzel. I wonder though, I wonder that the spinners also might have a sense of people feeling like they're, they're more easily to gain, you know? I think maybe spinners, maybe people think like you didn't spin that properly is an easy, yeah. you know? Maybe it's a, a dice is harder to, for someone to kind of arguably saying. I mean, it's, it's very obvious if somebody rolls a dice in a way that they're cheating because it's just like <laughs> you didn't, you just put that on the table. <laughs> um, it's quite black and white. Spinners also aren't great for like uh, the, the, the economy of attention of the players, right? A dice, you roll it, the result's there. A spinner, if you want to give that a good spin, you got to wait. You got to wait for your result as it spins around and gets that. Terrible tension, Tom. Tension. You get oh, mounting got no time. Right. But we've got we've got modern engineering as well. I'm sure that you could devise. <laughs> I'm sure that you could devise a spinner a bit like that mouse that I had that you used the other day that has a spinner that stops. Oh, that was itself, incredible. Right? So a spinner yeah. that like has something where it will spin for a tiny amount of time and then it will stop itself after. And like, then it will just immediately halt. There must be a way we can do that with cardboard. Listen, I mean, <laughs> this is a fascinating one. We're going to move on, but like you know, if you've been affected by any of the spinner slash dice issues in this podcast and you have uh, extreme thoughts about spinners um, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. musings about spinners then please do email the podcast at tom <laughs> www.shutupandsitdownthepodcast at gmail.com that's not the actual email no I, <laughs> you can't just email the podcast why not you can email me <laughs> all right email tom well don't email me <laughs> if you have concerns about spinners in your in your area email all right tom at... okay fine email me it's Matt at shutupandsitdown.com. Send me an email. What do you think about spinners? Now on to line Matt's two. Setting up a filter it's... right now to immediately send any spinner-related mail straight to the trash. Yeah, it contains the word spinner. Send to <laughs> Matt. Send to bed. Okay, um, back to... Uh, so that's Korra, Rise of an that's Empire. That's Korra, Rise of an Empire. I mean, I think I'd say about it, uh, finally, is that, like, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned there's not that much player interaction. That is true. But I also thought it was interesting that the kind of battle system and the combat thing of like you know basically building up armies and then spending them to get the rewards that felt like that was a core part of it that you couldn't really avoid Mm. and it was a thing that everyone was pushed towards in a way that like you had some flexibility the rest of the time but everyone was going to be doing that because you needed those uh things mostly to be getting the cards that you played so i do think there is you know i think in a way i actually sort of disagree i think there is that interaction but Yes, it creates an interaction in a in a mis- middle middle a middle visible space where effectively, rather than having yeah. this Euroy thing of having to actually look at other people's boards and look at what's going on with things, you can very easily see what's happening um, and have a sense of like, oh, am I, are they going to grab that first? Should I try and grab that first, etc. Yeah. So, I think there's there's exactly the right amount of player interaction for the game. I yeah. guess it's just I don't, you know, I want to put it out there that like this isn't a game, a Euro game. You know, it's not like Hands of Teutonica, right, where you're like bashing against each other straight away. No. It is a spreadsheet game that has this like little midpoint of friction with player interaction, but largely like the bulk of the game is played sort of making your own little numbers go up. Um, and I agree as well with your point that like there is this like leanness to the decision space in this game and like a combo factor where you yeah racing line was the right word you have to skirt just above like having enough money to get this thing and get this thing and you'll end your turn with nothing but that'll be 
worth it because you've made your number go up just a little bit for next turn so your engine can crunk out 100%. a few more points later on. And I mean, it is um, like, it says on the box, expert, and it's not messing yeah, around. That really cracked us up. The in fact the fact that... that, that it was like, yeah, but it wasn't messing time, about because then I played the first round and I was like, "Oh, but Tom, how do I get more money?" And it's like, "Oh yeah, you don't." Like that's it. Like yeah. there was there were so many points in that game where someone would mess something up and it would be like a "Don't make me tap the sign." But you know, for experts, it was pleasingly cruel in that factor of being like, "Yeah, but at the start of the game, how much taxes do I get each turn?" It's like none. It's like you get money at the start of the game, and it's like if you can't work out a way of getting some more money then you're not going to have any money. For you're in while. the bin. You're in the bin. Yeah. Which I like that. I like that a lot. No, I really enjoyed it. It was uh, dry and comforting, like a, a, an overly warm blanket. Mm. I very briefly want to talk about uh, Boon Lake um, as a sort of, as a companion to Coral Rise of Empire in terms of games where the numbers go up. And I think Boon Lake is maybe a little bit less successful than Cora in like a bunch of ways. Um, I won't go fully into like how Boon Lake works. I think we might discuss it like maybe on a future podcast, if at all. I left my play of Boon Lake being like, I don't, not that fussed about playing it again. Um, but what it is, is this big weighty Euro game. It's designed by Alexander Pfister and it's published by Capstone. In this game, you're kind of replenishing and repopulating this like stretch of uninhabitable land. You put greenery and buildings down onto it, and doing that lets you earn and play some cards that you're going to build up this tableau in front of you of bonuses that will pop off when you take certain actions. So, like Korra, it's kind of similar. You have some, you know, you have this the same setup as everyone else with variants added by the cards that you'll put in front of you. Um, and there's some cool stuff that's like differentiates this from other Euro games. You've got like a boat that goes down a path, like how you go up the path in Great Western Trail, but you kind of do it down river and you get bonuses along the way. You've got a board that's covered in little levers that will give you these one-time bonuses when you activate them. And there's this lovely little resource management game where you have another smaller river that sat on your player board where you have boats that go up and down the river and collect resources for you. And it costs you money to go against the tide, but it's free to slip back down. It's kind of an interesting little thing. And I thought that's really nice. But here's my problem with Boon Lake. And this kind of like would summarize any sort of pod discussion about it in the future. It's this study in like excess. You ramp up in this game into about the midpoint of the game. You've ramped up to hit a kind of maximum power. And then you just get to swim in all this stuff for the rest of the game. You'll have a huge tableau in front of you. Your numbers will be punching through the roof every single turn that you kind of stop making interesting decisions and just sort of spin your engine and harvest points. Like the numbers in the game get so big that you stop caring. And that's like the worst. Wow. And I think that's the point of comparison with Korra where it keeps it, Korra keeps it so tight and your engine spinning produces just a tiny amount more. Like you never get to a point where you're raking in like fistfuls of points, yeah. but the difference between like two money and three money feels huge. And the game slams off as soon as you've done your biggest turn. Whereas in Boon Lake, you feel like you're taking your biggest turn every turn once the game hits the midway point. It's huh. a really strange sensation. That is interesting. Especially because it's taken, it took me a long time to realize that actually that's not what you want. Because I remember being really yeah. frustrated for a long time playing Euro games because I always had that sensation of like, oh, it's over. I felt like it was just, like, it was just getting there. Like, you know, it was just starting <laughs> to really pop off. And it's, the answer, of course, is like, no, always leave, always leave your audience wanting more. Um, yeah. And I think that, yeah, the opposite of that, when you feel like, okay, okay, is it still going now? Are we still doing this? I mean, was the escalation <laughs> of numbers that huge? Was it like, you know, going to hundreds and stuff just for ages? 
it just felt like you we had a point in that game where we had so many cards in front of us that you would like take anything you did you would have a bonus that would apply to that action right it was like okay. everything you touched would then set off a little cascade of little bonuses that would get you x y and z and you just had so much currency in that game that you didn't know quite what to do with it um at least that was that was my problem with 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 boon lake by the mid game and it just drowned out some of the more interesting systems there's a really neat system where you have to like there's a really funky thing going on with the objectives that i can't quite remember well enough but you basically like have to the objectives get harder throughout the game. So you have to decide which ones you're going to score early on when they're easy and which ones you're going to shoot to score at the end when they're really difficult. But like, we just had enough. We just had enough to do all of the objectives. There was never a tension that we right. might fail. Really strange. That is odd. But that, yeah, I just wanted to briefly just witch on about Boon Lake. It's a really strange game. Um, and definitely this like exercise in yeah why you want a game to cut off just before it goes crazy like i think on the last podcast quinn's was speaking about how there was this sort of trend in old euro games where just succeeding at the game was the joy like doing an okay job was <laughs> was meant to produce satisfaction yeah but increasingly you're getting these games where like you of course you're gonna get a bunch of points it's how many you're gonna get like how far above the horizon are you going to go? And sometimes it really works. Like in Pipeline, where yes. you really have to squeeze to get to get yourself I think it, going. I think it works in games like Pipeline and Food Chain Magnate, particularly because they are games that feel like they are just about capitalism, and that's yes. why it works. <laughs> in the fact that it's like you either fail or you make more money than anyone could ever possibly need and crush everyone else, <laughs> and that makes sense. But when it's other things, it is interesting. It does. This sense of like, you know, po everything popping off is, is very kind of video games in a way. And I, I can see yeah. why it's a trend that people are um, are falling into. But they don't work in the same ways. And I think the most troubling thing I think is, you know, in talking about having this, like, so many cards that everything you do is doing a thing. Like, uh, like over Tableau is a, is a big problem I find in, in a lot of games <laughs> we play at the moment. Of I've just suddenly like, you know, you can't have more than like, eight cards in front of you that do things that's like the the top limit i think and even then when yeah. you've got like eight cards that do things if that's not like pretty much the whole game then or it's like that's too much really you know you having like fewer things that do more meaningful things is just yes is the way yes. to go because otherwise you just end up looking around the table and being like oh, i've completely forgot about that and that's kind of what i felt like when we were playing you know not a new game but when we were playing um Battle for the Five Armies, you know, have it play, you're playing mm. as the good folk with there. You've got so many things going on and so many characters and cards. It just becomes, you just forget stuff. And at that point, that's not a good feeling when it's like, oh, I forgot I could have done this thing because it's like, it's, that should never happen. You should never have a, unless it's something you've got that is useless to you for some reason, you should never have like a card in front of you that you can forget about, you know? <laughs> it's like, what's the point in it? <laughs> like, if it doesn't do something exciting, then... Why is, why is it there? Like <laughs> the Matt Lee's eight card limit. <laughs> I just think that that's stick it like, on every box. I mean, to be fair, like the human brain can only really remember like four <laughs> things. Um, yeah, and this is not a joke. Eat, <laughs> I know it sounds sleep. like the sort of thing I say that's completely facetious, <laughs> but it is true. Like we're not good at like remembering sequences of things and keeping things in our heads at the same time. And four is like, kind of our limit. And when we get outside of four, we use a technique called chunking, which is basically to combine things together into little packets to make it easy to remember and the way to think of this is like a phone number you think of your phone number you will naturally read out sequences of numbers because you've actually chunked that information up into like four chunks of small numbers yeah, yeah. 
And yeah, I think there's there's a lot to be said in the same thing for board games. Like, you know, like if you use that proven psychological research, it's like if you're gonna have loads of cards, make them so you can put them into like three or four different Chunker. stacks of things that you can clearly read as being one like you know, if you can have minor things, let's just like put them in a minor block of this type of thing. That all like just got a chunk of <laughs> just got a chunk of it's odd and i do i do i know i keep smashing against this drum with my brain but i do think a lot of this stuff uh that we're gonna see now um and over the next year maybe two three is is a lot of like tts testing you know because i do think that that tableau brain works better in tts having this space that you can jump between set cameras for the way we interact with things on computers versus things on tables is different and Mm -hmm. I do think it's easier to keep track of mad, complicated things in TTS than it is in real life. So, and especially board game arena, where it's actually doing a load of that admin for you. Does it for you? Forget things, right? (laughs) It's just there, and it's all happening. I was just going to say, like you heard it here first. Shut up and sit down. Definitely not in the pocket of Big Tableau. (laughs) (laughs) I refuse to take money from Big Tableau. It's too big. Let's talk a little bit about Founders of Teotihuacan. Uh, this is a game that I've played and the others haven't at all, which means that I'm going to be trying to convince them, Tom and Matt, do you actually want to get into this game? Uh, it's a quite a new game. It is related to a game called Teotihuacan that is by a different designer, same publisher, and has almost nothing in common, but the theming is the same. It is about... Um, a Mesoamerican city building. Um, have either of you two played the other Teotihuacan game? I have not. Not ever. Not ever. Not ever. No, not even once. I don't think I have. No, neither of you have. Well, that's okay because it's not very good, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> and I trust you, so we're fine. <laughs> yeah. um, it's basically like it did quite well at a couple of. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, mostly on the back of having this really lovely, big, resin block pyramid that you built together in the centre of the board. So you were circling this board and taking actions and building a lovely big pyramid in the centre of the board. I got really annoyed when I played it because I found out that the big lovely pyramid in the centre of the board is like a tiny, tiny part of the game that essentially, like, doing well well at it means that you will get, like, an extra point because you put something in the right place. Um, and I was a bit unhappy about that. Founders, which I'm not going to say the whole name because I'm getting really worried that I just keep on saying the name wrong, um, <laughs> instead gives you your own little pyramid and it shrinks it down to little pieces of cardboard that I didn't really like very much, but... Otherwise, it's really quite interesting. Um, this is a efficiency game about collecting resources, building a city, and building a pyramid in the middle of that city. Now, the city, all of the buildings that you're building, is made up of little Tetrisy pieces. Yes, we've all probably had enough of Tetrisy pieces, but like, I got excited about this because it does interesting things with Tetrisy pieces which I wouldn't have thought possible because I thought everyone had been doing it for so long. Right, okay, so the Tetris pieces are also how you gather resources. If you take a gold Tetris piece and you put it into your city, you then surround that Tetris piece with gold. So every time you build a building, 
onto your little board, you place the supplies that you're going to be able to use as resources for taking actions in the game. So every building mm. basically gives you an amount of income, but you can't, you will lose that income. You can't put things on other buildings. So if you build a building next to another building, that's at least one resource that you're not getting off it. If you build a building on top of a resource you've already built, that's another resource that you're losing just for doing that so you've already like ramped up the tetris puzzle of trying to get these things to interlock with an extra puzzle of like how can i make am i sure that i've got the right number of resources to buy the thing that i want to buy without can i afford to overblow that gold can i pay for it with that gold and then i've made space and that's fine lovely um also going on with this just in case that wasn't enough is that the city interacts with the pyramids now so this is like a tiny, it's quite a small board. And in the center of it is a square, the same kind of shape as the city, uh, that you have big chunky squares that you are putting into. Uh, there's bonuses to cover up as you put those things in there. And each of these is a different color. Those colors correspond to the temples that you put into the cities that don't get you resources, get you little bonuses. But they also multiply the points of temples that are built in the same area as the pyramid, <laughs> right? So if you've got something on the left-hand side of your pyramid, then that quarter of your pyramid will score for blue temples, but multipliers. So there's uh, this huge stack of points that you can get from building temples that reflect the pyramids appropriately, and it is Bit, a bit too much and quite fiddly to teach as you can tell from the fact that I'm I don't know what's going on <laughs> at oh. the point at which you know you can reflect the temples from the pyramids providing the colours match uh, to the, <laughs> secure the combo situation covering the pieces it's to spend the resources the code. getting the resources <laughs> to spend the resources from placing the pieces on the resources yeah I mean that sounds that does sound fiddly that does sound fiddly but but is it fun um, oh, it's really, really quite fun. Like it was, I, I, uh, I was taught it, um, and so, and it was a weird thing to try and learn. Um, and there's a lot of moving parts, but apart from the scoring of the pyramids, everything's actually quite straightforward when you get to it. Like there's an action thing in the middle of the board. Uh, there's three spaces you can go for actions. The top half is going to be building something. The bottom half is going to be a little bit of admin of one type or another. And there's this weird thing where you're stacking your discs on top of the discs that have been played by other people. So actions get more oh, powerful wow. as they go along, right. but you can play more. So there is another mechanic in there that I haven't even it's, there's yeah, verticality sorry. here. There's verticality. There's more verticality, yeah, because the pyramids are also <sighs> vertical because you build one thing. Because I was, I was thinking like hardcore Baron Park here, but now we're a, we're in a whole different uh, no realm. Is it's, it like is it like number seven? That horrendously difficult stacking. Oh, you're not was... stacking stuff on top of the Tetris pieces. Okay, don't worry about thank, that. Thank goodness for that because I was about to have. <laughs> A mild panic. <laughs> multiple layers of pyramid and multiple layers of workers, essentially. So, like, if gotcha. I want to do, if I want to build the biggest possible building, um, I need to put four workers down on a space. Uh, but that's like four out of seven workers that I've got that round. 
So I might not want to do that because mm. that's most of my actions. But I could slowly build up to it because I could put one worker on there and build a level one building. And then in the next turn, do a level two and build a level two building. And then on the next turn, do a level three. And then I'm getting loads of these buildings. Except every time I do that, I'm making that space more powerful for other people as well. So I might get it up to three the and then they... Yeah. They're reflecting from the power of your pyramid. Everything is reflecting off everything else, Matt, because I've got one more fruity rule to explain. How <laughs> deep does this, does this pyramid hole go? Pyramid no, go. no, no, but this rule, this rule is cool, right? So you can only place things in your city and in your temple if they are within range of your architect or foreman right. or whatever they're called, who is a little chap that sits at the edge of your board and every time you take an action, it moves to the next side. Right, okay. Which means that like you kind of divide the board into four quarters that are also where you want the temples to be um, and they look in. And so there'll be a space that you can use and a space that you can use and there'll be two things that you can't. And then the next turn, one of the things you could do on the last turn, you can still use, but now you've got a new one, but there's a bit that's right. out of reach and you won't get again for another three turns. So you're... right. You've got cogs within cogs, right? Um, uh, and you're thinking it's about... It's a secret the... square rondel, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah. The classic secret square rondel <laughs> mechanic in the reflecting pyramid genre. I do actually understand this game now. Like, I didn't for a while, but I've got a vision of it in my head now, and I hope that listeners do as well. Yeah. It does sound fascinating. I'm looking at a picture of the game in front of me, and I still don't have a vision <laughs> of it in my head. Oh, Tom, also, I've got to explain to you, you know that those bonuses that you get for having thing, py the pyramid reflection bonuses for having a colour in the pyramid that's in the next thing. I don't. You can score a temple <laughs> twice if it overlaps from one area to another, which means that you can, like, double quadruple points it. Ah! I quite liked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds fascinating. I kind of want to give it a shot. It sounds really fun. Um, it sounds like a real, a real brain burner. Anyway, as we approach the final docking port of this underwater landscape in the pod vessel, um, it's time to say farewell to the crew as they... Uh, are jettisoned drowned. out of the airlock <laughs> yeah thanks it's a fantastic subnautical uh, underwater podcast I've really enjoyed it yeah that was really good we, we went on an underwater journey between lots of um, underwater territories we talked about underwater games and games you can play in the bath podquatic thank you very much for listening to this episode of the shut up and sit down podcast we'll be back again next week with more games and more water than you could ever want i was gonna say conceive <laughs> but that's the wrong word bye bye, bye.